Welcome to another episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the podcast that aims to bring you the latest developments, medical breakthroughs, and information on all things oncology. Olivia Newton-John, the famed singer, actress, and legend of the silver screen, once said her dream was to find a world beyond cancer, one where health centers focused on wellness and that cancer will be a thing of the past. We at Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind headquarters also share in that sentiment and hope that our up-to-date coverage gives you, our listeners, the empowerment to help treat your patients and support them in their journey to a better tomorrow. At present, parts of Australia are mourning the end of summer, those long warm evenings and endless barbecues and beach runs. And I'm looking at you, Melbourne, the cultural capital of Down Under. Luckily, Those of us in Sydney can expect balmy temperature weather all year round. Do not distress. Despite our climate differences, we have a great episode today for you looking at head and neck cancer. Josh, I feel personally attacked by your introduction, living in (laughs) Melbourne and being without summer for most of the year. I think today it's 36 degrees, right? So (laughs) it's one day. It's weather. It's not climate. Climate is cold. Anyway, climate the- <laughs> is cold. Thank you for that introduction, Josh, on head and neck cancer. It is a very interesting and quite niche tumor stream, but one that we will endeavor to illuminate to our listeners. Michael, would you love to give us an introduction on what we are talking about today? Absolutely. Would love that, Josh. So, head and neck cancers or head and neck squamous cell cancers, it's important to note the first thing is that it re- refers to a wide variety of cancers. Saying head and neck cancers is the same as saying lung cancer or GI cancer or hepatobiliary cancer. Just because they fall in the same anatomical region of the body or the same anatomical system does not mean that they are similar or the same, I should say, because they are distinct entities within head and neck cancer. So it refers to cancers affecting the oral cavity, the oropharynx, nasopharynx, larynx, paranasal sinuses, thyroid, and salivary glands. And as you might expect, that's a very broad range of structures from which a very broad range of cancers can emerge. According to figures from the WHO, head and neck cancer accounts for 900,000 cases and 400,000 deaths annually worldwide, which is probably higher than a lot of uh, people, particularly in Western countries, would think. Michael, why is it that we, I guess those of us who own Western countries or you know, with very exceptionally good health systems don't see such high levels of head and neck cancers anymore? I think that's a very good question, Josh. And I think the majority of that answer lies in the risk factors. Many of these risk factors are associated with uh, lower SES areas or specific ethnicities. Risk factors for head and neck cancers, and this is sort of a uh, a general list, include tobacco, 
which increases the risk of head and neck cancers between 5 and 25-fold. And this, it's important to note, includes both smoking in the form of cigars and cigarettes, as well as chewing tobacco. Alcohol is another risk factor, and the risk increase appears to be dose-dependent. The more you drink, the higher your risk. Other agents include opium, which is associated with an increased risk of laryngeal cancer, betel nut chewing, which is quite rampant in areas of Southeast Asia, appears to increase the risk of head and neck squamous cell cancer in a synergistic fashion with smoking and alcohol. The other fact, the risk factor that increases the incidence of head and neck cancer in a lot of these areas is viral infections. So Epstein-Barr virus, which is heavily associated with developing nasopharyngeal cancer, HPV, particularly its P16 variant, herpes simplex, chronic hepatitis C infection, as well as immunosuppression with infections such as HIV. Presenting symptoms really depend on the location of the primary. A red flag for anyone who is doing a diagnostic workup for potential head head and neck cancer is referred otalgia or ear pain. That might indicate that the cancer is affecting the branches of the 5th and 7th cranial nerves. Neck masses are common presentations in patients with nasopharyngeal cancer, present in 90% of patients, and I had a patient who had a nasopharyngeal cancer just last week whose presenting complaint was a palpable neck mass. Other symptoms include hearing loss, tinnitus, nasal obstruction, and involvement of cranial nerves 2 to 6 if the primary cancer is becoming very locally advanced. In terms of oral cavity tumours, mouth pain, non-healing ulcers, loosening of teeth and ill-fitting dentures, dysphagia, adynophagia, weight loss, bleeding or referred otalgia are all potential symptoms. And compare and contrast that with laryngeal cancer, which can present with hoarseness of voice, chronic cough, hemoptysis and stridor. And finally, in terms of the histology, 90 to 95% of these lesions are squamous cell cancers. These vary in terms of their differentiation, and the marker that we use for this is the degree of keratinization. Well differentiated is determined by cancers that are greater than 75% keratinized. Moderately differentiated cancers are 20 to 25 to 50% keratinized, and poorly differentiated uh, squamous cell cancers have a keratinization of less than 25%. So a very broad range of cancers, Josh, with myriad presenting complaints and different pathological behaviours. I, I love how you went through the, the differentiation when it comes to the symptom presentation because I find all the patients in the head and neck space that I have seen present so heterogeneously and so uniquely that I can understand why they come in with locally advanced disease because it's just so atypical. And it's, as I said, it's very dependent on location. It's like real estate, location, location, location. The symptoms from a cancer that's higher up in the oropharyngeal space are naturally going to be different to the symptoms of a cancer that's lower down. So it's it's not surprising that people with different cancers in different locations present differently. Yeah, that's that's pretty reasonable and pretty logical as well. So Josh, I think I might go through my study first, if that's all right with you, because 
as Josh will reveal in his study, there are slight permutations and combinations in the treatment of early head and neck squamous cell cancer, depending on its location, specifically with nasopharyngeal cancer. However, if you have a locally advanced cancer that we are treating with curative intent, the backbone of treatment is surgery and then post-op chemotherapy and radiotherapy. So Josh, I might speak about the JCOG1008 study from 2022. And when I was reading for this episode, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole. That's the first thing I'll say, because there is a significant degree of controversy in the best way to deliver chemotherapy as a radiosensitizer for radiotherapy in the adjuvant or definitive space. There is a lot of conflicting data in this area. Cisplatin is always the chemotherapy that is used in combination with radiotherapy in the definitive space if a patient can tolerate chemotherapy at all. The cumulative cisplatin dose that is associated with better loco-regional control is thought to be anywhere north of 200 milligrams per meter squared, and that's over the course of the chemoradiotherapy treatment. And so, Michael, just for our listeners, when you say anything north of 200 milligrams cumulative, so it can be either 200 milligrams or higher. So 200 milligrams or higher. Yeah, you're exactly right. Very good. and and this has been held up really as a as a tentpole of the treatment of early head and neck cancer. The standard of care at this point is giving cisplatin in a three weekly regimen, with each dose being 100 milligrams per meter squared. So, in total, you'll get about 300 milligrams per meter squared, but. The critical thing is that patients get at least two doses, so they can get above that 200 milligram threshold. But even this foundational aspect of treatment has not consistently been demonstrated. A 2019 analysis uh, by uh, Helfenstein et al. of three centres in Switzerland did not demonstrate any improved benefit of patients who got past that 200 milligrams per meter squared threshold. There are also significant concerns about toxicity associated with three-weekly cisplatin. It is a big dose and there are higher rates of ototoxicity and nephrotoxicity when compared to weekly cisplatin. And so this balance of efficacy with three-weekly cisplatin where you're thought to have a higher cumulative dose of uh, chemotherapy compared to its weekly counterpart has to be balanced with the likelihood of patients tolerating the treatment in the first place. And this has been an area of great debate, and there's no real consensus as to which way is best. Previous meta-analyses have suggested that the two approaches have equal efficacy, but there are no large trials demonstrating non-inferiority of weekly cisplatin. There was one by Noronha, Uh, et al. in 2018, but this used 30 milligrams per meter squared as the weekly dose, when the common dose at this point is 40 milligrams per meter squared. Got all that? No? Good, because it will not become any clearer. But the the JCOG study was a pivotal study in that it was an open-label non-inferiority phase 2 to 3 trial conducted in 28 institutions in Japan. To the author's knowledge, this is the first large study 
based on the 40 milligram per meter squared weekly cisplatin dose that aimed to prove non-inferiority, but even this study, as we will see, has its problems. But let's start with the basics. So the study enrolled 261 patients uh, with squamous cell cancers of the oral cavity, oropharynx, hypopharynx, or larynx. They had to be stage 3, 4A, or 4B, and they had to have high risk factors for recurrence post-surgical resection, defined as a microscopically positive margin or extracapsular extension. Their ECOG had to be 0 to 1, and they had to obviously have adequate organ function. Patients were randomised 1 to 1 to receive 3 weekly at 100 milligrams per metre squared, or weekly at 40 milligrams per metre squared, cisplatin along with post-op radiotherapy. As mentioned, this is both a phase 2 and a phase 3 trial sort of mashed together. So of the phase 2 component, the primary endpoint was treatment completion, defined as patients receiving either 2 out of 3 doses of the 3-weekly regimen or 5 out of 7 doses in the weekly regimen. The primary endpoint in the phase 3 component was overall survival, and it's important to note that this is a non-inferiority study, So and and how they define non-inferiority will be a talking point later. Secondary endpoints include recurrence-free survival, local recurrence-free survival, nutrition support-free survival, non-hospitalised treatment period, and adverse events. These are a very interesting collection of secondary endpoints, but unfortunately a lot of them weren't available in the version of the article that I had found it would be good to actually find data for them because nutrition support free survival and non-hospitalized treatment periods are very important outcomes in patients receiving definitive treatment. A lot of our patients need nasogastric tubes or even PEGs or PEG tubes to maintain nutrition and a significant proportion of patients will end up in hospital at some point during their treatment. So those outcomes would be interesting to find but unfortunately we don't have them at our fingertips here. In terms of demographics, the median age was 62, 85% were male, which is very much in keeping with the demographics of overall head and neck cancers, 70% of patients were ECOG zero, and in terms of the spread of primary sites, the vast majority of patients had either oral cavity or hypopharyngeal cancer. We should come back to the statistical definition of non-inferiority because the study allowed for a non-inferior margin hazard ratio of 1.32 which means that according to the study, patients in the weekly cisplatin arm could have a 32% higher risk of recurrence or death and still be called non-inferior. That's a very broad definition. It's the one that the uh, study authors have chosen, but that is something that it is important to keep in mind when we go through the results, which we will do right now. So the median follow-up was 2.2 years and The study met its primary endpoint, where the weekly arm was deemed to be non-inferior to the three-weekly arm. The overall survival hazard ratio was 0.69, but as this is a non-inferiority study, we can't flip the script and say that weekly cisplatin is superior. Or we can say that according to the definition set by the authors, it is non-inferior. The estimated two-year survival rate was 74% in the three-weekly arm versus 77% in the weekly arm. And the estimated three-year survival in the three-weekly arm was 59.1% versus 71% in the weekly arm. The subgroup analysis, we often say that 
benefit was maintained across all subgroups, this is much less the case here. There is a lot of subgroups that cross the line of equivalence, and this is particularly notable in patients with poorly differentiated cancer. So remember, uh, low keratinization of less than 25%, and patients with both extra capsular extension and a positive microscopic resection margin. So there is a lot of caveats to this result of non-inferiority. Michael, what do you attribute the difference in the significant value discrepancy between the three-year overall survival between the one- and three-week cisplatin? I honestly don't know, Josh. It is something that is surprising to me based on some of the other data that was gathered in this study. I guess, again, because it is a non-inferiority study, we can't definitively say that it is better, and it is important to note that it is an estimated survival. I don't believe that the follow-up has actually been completed to the three-year mark, but it does seem that for whatever reason, in this population at least, the survival in the three-week lysisplatin cohort really falls off a cliff between two to three years. Now, is that related to the treatment? It's very difficult to say because you would think that the risk of recurrence after sort of six to 12 months would start to drop and any sort of increase in recurrence rates would not be as easily applied to the original treatment. I just think there's a lot going on and you can't definitively say both with the way the figures are presented and the way the study is constructed that the survival benefit of weekly cisplatin is better, particularly to a, such a significant degree of almost 12% at three years, than the three-weekly arm. Interesting. That's basically my way of saying I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, neither do I. And this is where things get a bit messy, because when we talk about the cumulative dose of cisplatin, which is, again, something that is thought to be very important uh, in the outcomes of the treatment of early head and neck cancer. In the three-weekly arm, patients got 280 milligrams per meter squared on average, whereas in the weekly arm, patients got 239 milligrams per meter squared. So patients in the weekly, patients in the weekly arm are getting less cisplatin compared to the three-weekly arm. In a similar vein, the proportion of actual to planned delivery of cisplatin, so how many patients got the full dose, was 88.9% in the three-weekly arm versus 84.1% in the weekly arm. So even though the outcomes appear to favour weekly cisplatin, it seems like by every other metric, patients getting the three-weekly regimen are getting more of the planned chemotherapy. The proportion of treatment completion was likewise higher. 93% of patients in the three-weekly arm versus 87% in the weekly arm completed their entire treatment. So again, you're looking at uh, patients getting more cisplatin with their radiotherapy in the three-weekly arm. There was, of course, the expected higher toxicity with higher rates of both hematological and non-hematological adverse events in the three-weekly arm particularly in the area of myelosuppression and leukopenia. So I guess in conclusion, wrapping this all together, this is a bit of an incongruent trial. It demonstrates non-inferiority of weekly cisplatin compared to three-weekly cisplatin. 
However, the authors had a very broad definition of non-inferiority. And this sort of flies in the face of conventional thinking in that the patients in the three-weekly arm had a higher cumulative dose of cisplatin and had a higher proportion of patients completing their expected chemoradiotherapy regimen. There is also the potential for poorer outcomes in high-risk patients. Those are patients with poorly differentiated cancer and patients with high-risk features such as extracapsular extension and positive margins. So my takeaway from this, honestly, is the opposite of what the authors likely intended, which is that if you have a patient who is particularly of high risk, so nodal involvement, extracapsular extension, uh, you are probably safer trying the three-weekly approach. However, if toxicity is a significant concern and the patient's ability to tolerate treatment is a significant concern, one should consider weekly cisplatin. But again, and this comes back to the incongruity of the trial and the, the messy, convoluted nature of the evidence in this whole space, the trial did suggest that patients with three weekly cisplatin were more likely to complete their treatment. So ultimately, and we say this all the time, this is our get-out-of-jail-free card, you need to tailor it to the patient. If they're frail, consider weekly. If they're fit and high-risk and you think they can take a more toxic regimen, go three-weekly. Three-weekly is probably safer. And the other big question is we don't have that five-year data yet. So I think knowing definitively A or B is going to be very difficult right at this point. Absolutely. But even if we do have the five-year data, Josh, I guess because of the way they've constructed the trial with that um, hazard ratio for non-inferiority of 1.32, even if the conclusion is it's non-inferior, will we be able to take a practice-changing conclusion away from that five-year five year data? I don't know. I don't really think that this would change the approach of many people in the head and neck space. No, but I would be interested to see what the overall survival was in this trial. Absolutely, and I think really what needs to happen is there needs to be a superiority study, a study that is it is sets out with the explicit goal of proving which is better rather than cisplatin is equivalent. Yeah, that, that sounds like a good next step, Michael. That can be your uh, PhD. <laughs> oh, we're throwing around PhD ideas. Um, <laughs> so regardless of what type of early head and neck cancer you have, chemoradiotherapy is almost certainly going to be a component, but there is a subtype of head and neck cancer, and that's nasopharyngeal cancer, where there is emerging evidence for one extra step. So, Josh, would you like to talk about induction chemotherapy before chemoradiotherapy in patients with locally advanced nasopharyngeal cancer? Michael, I would love to. Do you mind if I talk a little bit about nasopharyngeal carcinomas before we kick off? Please do. Wonderful. So nasopharyngeal carcinomas are a head and neck cancer, as Michael so nicely said. It affects approximately 130,000 patients worldwide, and the highest rates occurring in, Michael, do you know where? Southeast Asia. Uh, yep. So South China, Southeast Asia, and North China. More than 70% of these patients receive a diagnosis when local regionally advanced disease is presented, um, which means it's 
it's caught later than earlier. What we do know is that the addition of chemotherapy as an induction or adjuvant regimen to chemoradiotherapy has been investigated with mixed results. The toxicity of systemic therapy after chemoradiotherapy remains quite a big issue. You know, one, one agent versus two agent, radiotherapy, all that added and adding to what Michael said about prior chemoradiotherapy, you know, those risks of things like hospital admissions are high and malnutrition and pegs and NG tubes. So a previous phase two trial has shown that gemcitabine when added to cisplatin was an effective combination in those with nasopharyngeal carcinoma and was actually established as first-line treatment over cisplatin and fluorouracil in patients with recurrent or metastatic disease. However, the question is, what do you do in newly diagnosis, non-metastatic, locally, local-regionally advanced disease? Um, and the role of this was actually unclear. Thus comes the trial. <laughs> that's generally people's approach when there's anything that's unclear. Yeah, so... Uh, the, the questions I had, just to summarize, what's the efficacy? What's the safety profile in induction treatment with gemcitabine plus cisplatin to chemoradiotherapy? So this is a multi-centered, randomized, controlled phase three clinical trial to investigate the efficacy and safety profiles adding gemcitabine plus cisplatin prior to chemoradiotherapy in those with local, loco-regionally advanced nasopharyngeal carcinoma. This was an investigator-initiated trial, and the eligibility criteria was as follows. You know, between 18 and 64, you had to have either stage 3 or stage 4B disease, excluding subgroups of patients with low risk of metastases. So that was that of those with bulky primary tumour with no nodal involvement, um, and that was a, according to AJCC 7th grade criteria, sorry, 7th edition criteria. Um, no previous treatment was allowed for cancer. Key exclusion criteria included receipt of treatment with palliative intent, a history of cancer, um, prior radiotherapy, chemotherapy, or surgery. So these are essentially treatment-naive individuals. And the primary endpoint was recurrent-free survival, which was defined as time from randomization to documented disease recurrence. And the secondary endpoints, Michael, included overall survival, distant recurrent free survival, and documented distant metastases and death. So these patients were recruited over three years, yada, yada, yada. There were 480 patients enrolled. <laughs> they broke down to either intervention arm or control arm, which is just the standard of care, which is chemoradiotherapy. And the intervention arm was induction chemotherapy before chemoradiotherapy. When we look at the breakdown of patient characteristics, I've got to say, Michael, men just seem to do a lot worse or have a lot more prevalence of having head and neck cancers than uh, their female counterparts with 75% um, of males in this trial on one arm being, or well, I guess being in the trial on the other side being 68%. And that's not just a quirk of these trials, Josh. It is very well known that men are more frequently affected with head and neck cancer than women. Uh, depending on where you live, the ratio can range from 2 to 1, more so twice as likely, to 4 to 1. So you're four times more likely to have head and neck cancer as a man. There we go. And tumor category, most with T3 or T4, and 
the nodal category, most patients had N1 or N2 disease and disease status was stage 4A was 43%, stage 3 was 45%. So most of them had either stage 3 or stage 4 disease. Efficacy, Michael. Overall, 94.6% of patients had a response after induction chemotherapy before the start of chemoradiotherapy. 24 patients had a complete response and 84.5% of patients had a partial response. Not bad. At 16 weeks after radiotherapy, 97% of patients in the induction arm had a complete response, as did 96.6% of patients in the standard therapy group. So let's take a quick moment at this point. What do you think those two numbers mean? You know, it's 97 point. 97.1% in the induction arm or 96.6% in the standard of care, Michael? I guess what it means is our standard of care is still really good. But you are, for these patients who have curable, and let's be honest, the one thing we haven't mentioned is how morbid head and neck cancer is because of where it is in the body, both aesthetically, functionally, nutritionally it is a very very morbid cancer and so it is very much so a cancer that we would like to eke every percentage point out of survival so they're close but any benefit with uh with head and neck cancer is something that i would sign up for that's it michael and that last follow-up which was in 2019 and a median follow-up time of 42.7 months a total of 69.3 3% of patients were alive at the date of follow-up. And is is that in the induction arm? No, that's out of everyone. Oh, wow. Yeah, so not, not too bad, right? So when we look at the survival and response to treatments, this is where things get a little bit nitty-gritty and it'll be a good conversation point. So recurrence or death, so the number was... in the induction arm and 26.5% in the standard of care arm. And the percentage of patients alive and without recurrence was 80, between 80 and 89% in the induction versus 70 and 81% in the standard of care with a hazard ratio of 0.51. And that was statistically significant. There you go. Now that's, that's, that's it. <laughs> that's the end of our podcast. That's, that's the episode. That's, <laughs> that's the episode. We fixed it. We fixed cancer. Um, no, but so recurrence free survival, Michael, the percentage of patients alive at the three year mark was 85.3% in the induction arm and 76.5% in the standard of care arm and hazard ratio of 0.51. So that can be the end of our episode today. Would you agree? Would definitely agree. That's it. We're done. <laughs> okay. And overall survival percentage of patients alive at three years, 94.6 versus 90% with a hazard ratio of 0.43, also statistically significant. And then distant recurrence-free survival, the three years was 91.1 versus 84.4%, favoring the intervention arm with another hazard ratio of 0.43. And I definitely got the, the best trial for today. I quite enjoy this. And... When we look at complete response to induction, you saw that in 10% of patients, which is not insignificant, partial response in 84.5 and stable disease in 4.2. So really only 1.3% progressed in this particular trial. 
So complete response, we saw that in 97.1% in the intervention arm and 96.6% in the control arm. And then progressive disease was 0.4% in the intervention arm and 0.4% in the control arm. So we're already dealing with small numbers here, but nevertheless, in terms of hazard ratios, the induction chemotherapy is really providing a benefit. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly it. It really is fair to say. Um, and then we've got to go and talk about adverse events, which kinds of ru- kind of ru- ruins the conversation. But every, every study has a catch. Every study has a catch. 93 of the 239 patients or 38% had adverse reactions. Um, neutropenia was most common in 20%, followed by leukopenia in 10% and vomiting. Uh, overall, in the intervention arm, 75.7% in the induction arm um, and 55.7% in the standard of care arm reported adverse events. So, Michael, a 20% difference in the overall toxicity profile in the induction arm favouring the standard of care therapy, which is in keeping with having extra chemo and really just a longer duration of therapy. Absolutely. And I have no notes. I have no notes. Perfect. No, no, no cliff notes for today. The induction, we saw leukopenia, neutropenia being sort of predominantly the uh, impacted here. And I guess you, you actually do see a fair, fairly similar rate in the standard of care. But remember, you've got induction and then you've got standard of care. So you're going to have a higher risk of having neutropenia and, you know, leukopenia in this particular cohort anemia was high in the induction um so it was thrombocytopenia so it was mucositis actually that was probably about even um and you saw more people that had nausea or vomiting in the uh intervention arm or the induction therapy arm so everything kind of irked and sort of favored from a tolerability perspective the standard of care but that was as expected but as you also said michael we're really gunning here to try and cure these people um, and reduce the risk. So if you can eke out every percentage point, then it's really important to try and do so. Completely agree, Josh. And I think this has become a standard of care in the nasopharyngeal space, but with, I guess, one question, and that is that the trial used cisplatin and gemcitabine and then followed it with cisplatin in the chemoradiotherapy space as we've spoken about before that's a lot of cisplatin yep it's uh, coming out of everyone's ears in this particular trial and as quite Ma- literally and michael highlighted you know this is an old age bracket they are men and not that i'm here to kind of make assumptions but depending where you work and depending on the industry some of these guys might have been in things like hearing issues could be quite prevalent also kidney issues as well and yes we've got a higher rate of curing these people but if you they if they end up having those two toxicities or as the third option being ongoing um uh, peripheral neuropathy that would not be particularly nice no absolutely not and it's not just i guess peripheral neuropathy ototoxicity uh, nephrotoxicity, but it's also the fact that you are going into chemo radiotherapy after the induction chemotherapy, where, as we have seen, 
And as anyone who has worked in a centre that is capable of treating head and neck cancer will know, these patients have really bad problems with oral intake, mucositis, fatigue, dermatitis, um, lots of other side effects. And if they're already slightly vulnerable from a uh, from having had cisplatin and gemcitabine as induction, then you're more likely, in theory, to see patients not complete their chemo proportion of the chemo radiotherapy and not come in over that 200 milligrams per meter squared threshold at which point outcomes tend to improve according to conventional uh, conventional wisdom and i didn't highlight this mikey but when you look at the definition of ototoxicity or otitis as they said so 72 percent in the induction chemo and 75 percent in the standard of care chemo nephrotoxicity was about 20 percent in the induction and 11 percent in the standard of care and i think you know maybe combining therapies and prolonged duration and all those questions you do have to ask what is the uh, longer term toxicities and consequences of giving such high doses and long doses of cisplatin? I think the honest answer is that we don't know the exact rates, but we know the risks. And I have not met a patient... Ever? I have not met a patient ever. I've not met a patient yet who, when faced with very high risks of nephro and ototoxicity, would be keen to undergo that treatment. And so at least what we're doing where I work, Josh, is we're substituting the carbo... Uh, we're substituting the cisplatin in this trial for carboplatin, which, of course, has its own set of problems, but they don't tend to accumulate as much when followed by cisplatin. Now, is that evidence-based? Probably not. I'm not aware of any non-inferiority studies that uh, compare cisplatin gemcitabine with carboplatin gemcitabine, but it is probably a practical measure, a reasonable practical measure, when you're talking about cumulative toxicity with cisplatin. And remember, we are trying to cure these patients, so you don't want to leave them with tinnitus and peripheral neuropathy for, as you said, with your results, potentially long periods of time as a consequence of our treatment. That's right, Michael. I think you've once again given such a succinct and pertinent comment about what we're trying to achieve here. You're so kind, Josh. It's disturbing. (laughs) On occasion. But (laughs) did you want to summarize for us? I think so. So in summary, in the treatment of early head and neck squamous cell cancers, they are a highly varied collection of cancers arising from multiple different locations in the head and neck anatomy. Risk factors include occupational exposures to tobacco, alcohol, opium, as well as viral infections with EBV, herpes simplex, and HPV. The standard of care regardless really of where the chemo arises from, is surgery followed by combination chemo radiotherapy with cisplatin. However, the exact delivery mode of the cisplatin, whether that's weekly at 40 milligrams per meter squared or three weekly at 100 milligrams per meter squared, remains unknown. There are lots of studies that will go one way, the other. Our study today demonstrated non-inferiority of weekly versus three-weekly cisplatin, but there are a number of caveats. 
the one area where there's really no caveats and where it's a very much a standard of care is the area of induction chemotherapy with a platinum plus gemcitabine combination in patients with locally advanced nasopharyngeal cancer. This demonstrates significant improvements in recurrence-free and overall survival and is definitely something that should be done for any patient who can tolerate it. However, even here, there is the caveat that we don't want to give patients too much cisplatin, especially when we're trying to cure them of their cancer. Brilliant. Thank you, Josh. Um, So that's all we have for you today. Thank you for listening. Join us next week on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, where we'll be following this road of head and neck squamous cell cancer to its logical conclusion. What happens when the cancer recurs, metastasizes, and we have to deal with it in a palliative setting? Cannot wait. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com. Inquisitive Onc.